Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, you're telling me. Producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. The Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals links to the source material from all of our adapted film discussions. Purchasing through our links support the show at no extra cost to you. In Season 12, the focus was big franchises and series. We covered both Paddington films, adapted from the beloved children's book character created by Michael Bond. Oh, I love those films so much. Hugh Grant is perfect. For our Pitch Perfect series, the first film was adapted from Mickey Rapkin's nonfiction book about collegiate acapella competitions. It's like a short story of my life, literally. I lived college acapella. Sing it, brother. I lived college acapella. <laughs> I didn't mean literally. <laughs> You know who you're talking to, right? The Twilight Saga dominated the season with five films adapted from Stephanie Meyer's vampire romance novels, Twilight, New Moon, Eclipse, and the two Breaking Dawn parts. Dominated with awkward romance and nonsense logic is more like it. <laughs> that too. Another Thin Man brought us back to Dashiell Hammett's only Thin Man sequel based on other Hammett material, The Farewell Murder, that wasn't just based on the characters from the first film. We talked about Train Spotting and its sequel, T2 Train Spotting, adapted from Irvine Welsh's novels. Ugh, I hate the sequel's name. I do too. And the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy, adapted from J.R.R. Tolkien's epic fantasy series. Love these. Extended editions all the way, baby. Plus, all the Mission Impossible films based on the 1960s TV series. And we've still got at least one more to go. Members got to hear us chat about The Hustler and The Color of Money, adapted from Walter Tevis's books. Get all of these books and more at our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. Start your next read from the movies we've covered at thenextreel.com slash originals.
I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Mission Impossible 3 is over. You can always tell someone's character by the way they treat those they don't need to treat well. Who are you? You have a, you have a wife, girlfriend. Whoever she is, I'm going to find her. I'm going to hurt her. And then I'm going to kill you right in front of her. Mission Impossible 3, Andy, from our pre-chat, I gather you are not as much of a fan of this movie as I am, and I'm a little bit nervous about that. There are things to like in this movie. There are also, I think, just some some things that I I struggle with, but I, I think on the whole, at least we're moving in a better direction. You know, I I, I had some issues with, a lot of issues with um, John Woo's mess of a movie with Mission Impossible 2. Um, and I don't know, I don't know. It's it's an interesting franchise. You know, up to this point, Robert Town has largely been involved in the scripting. Um, you know, we've had David Kep working uh, on the first film, Steve Zalen uh, working on the story with David Kep. On the second film, uh, Brandon Braga, Ronald D. Moore working on the story, and then Robert Town writing the script. And here we have, I, I guess I would say, at least it feels like a team of people who uh, kind of click together a little bit more with Roberto uh, Orsi, Alex Kurtzman, and J.J. Abrams working together on the script. So I think to a certain extent, at least this film to me feels more cohesive. But I still, I, I still... Uh, struggle a little bit with the direction of the story, but still, I, I, it's it's not that I don't like this film. I just think I st- it's on the right track. I just think that it it gets a lot of praise, but I think that's just because it's better than the first two. Well, yeah, it is a it, it is to to that level. It's quite a recovery <laughs> after the first after at least the second one, um, which is which is too much. But I have to think back as I'm watching this thing, I think back to where I was with J.J. Abrams, right? Because where I was, this was his directorial debut. And where I was with J.J. Abrams was a massive fan of Alias. I loved, loved, loved Alias. He was just editing the pilot of Lost when he got this gig, Mission Impossible. So Lost was uh, was a thing that I was already invested in multiple seasons into by the time we saw this movie. And, you know, I was a fan of Felicity, too. I, I was already a fan of J.J. Abrams coming in to direct. Like, I already liked the kinds of stories that he and his team were telling. So this was a massive fun experience seeing this movie. I mean, it was just massive. And so I, you know, over the years, I I found some things that I could possibly pick at. But overall, it it cements the transition of Tom Cruise as such an extraordinary action franchise guy for me that, um, you know, that it's it's hard for me to to have too many quibbles with it. And, and I mean, yeah, you're coming in with kind of your TV history with him. And I don't uh, I never saw an episode of uh, Felicity or Alias. And so my knowledge of those is is pretty thin. I definitely 
was around for Lost with that particular uh, project. And I hadn't fallen out of love with Lost at this point. <laughs> All right. Yeah, well, eventually, eventually I did. But right now, Lost certainly had uh, some some issues. But like J.J. Abrams, I mean, he, it's not like he hadn't been in the film business. Like he had actually been working as a screenwriter you know, long before, even before he was really doing much of his TV stuff, did some stuff that I enjoyed, some stuff that I, yeah, it was all right. And then he really kind of took off with uh, TV. But yeah, this film, like when this film came out, I don't think that I really had any connection to J.J. Abrams as a person behind different properties. Like, I just didn't think of him in that capacity. So I came into this film probably like I did the other films, going, oh, okay, it's another director. Oh, it's that guy who did Alias. Uh, okay, well, we'll see what he can do with this thing. Right. And so, uh, like, I, I came into this with much less um, excitement, uh, at least about him helming it. But it, it, yeah. it did pique my curiosity just to see what they were going to do with it. I think the bigger challenge at the time was was not my necessarily my enthusiasm for J.J. Abrams, but the the sort of little red wagon of Tom Cruise controversy that followed this film. I mean, he was still dealing with the the blowback from the couch jumping uh, Oprah activity and South Park had just absolutely lampooned him and Travolta and uh, in the trapped in the closet. Uh, episode that was just a couple of months prior. And he I, I think, you know, even as much fun of a movie as this was, um, was, you know, one of those things that that I, I think even Tom Cruise was at the point where they were trying to figure out, is this guy really Teflon? Like, is he going to be able to, um, you know, to outlast this kind of um, sort of buffoonery um, that's that's in his personal life? Uh, and obviously, we've seen where he's gone since. But at the time, I think there was a real question. And was, would this movie be able to um, to outlast that? I don't I, I don't think ultimately it did as well as it could have done. I guess that's my assessment. I don't think it did as well as it could have done uh, had it not had that baggage. I, I don't know that we'll necessarily know, but that's just what it sort of feels like. Yeah, I, I mean, this. Go, comes in line still with the point in this franchise, which and, you know we've talked about so far, where Tom Cruise and Paula Wagner as the as the team behind producing this franchise. This is something they kind of took on to handle themselves. They uh, really were trying to figure out what the tone of this franchise was going to be. And I have a sense when you're looking at something like Mission Impossible, an action property of people trying to solve these impossible missions, there's a lot of challenge to figure out how are we going to make this different than these other big action properties out there like James Bond, which we've already brought up a number of times, things like that, where it's like, okay, what what's different about this? And there is this element that has been running through the first two films, certainly about the action hero um, having like a different woman in every movie at this point. And so it certainly has felt like that was an angle that perhaps that they were still taking, but were like, well, what can we do to maybe shake something up a little bit to make this feel different than a James Bond movie? Although, of course, there is the the whole um, James Bond film where he also settles down and gets married only to have his wife get killed. So there is kind of something funny there. But I, I can't help but feel like there was this 
direction that perhaps, and I, you know, I'm not exactly sure how the conversations went, but I think that there must be some interesting element to wanting to kind of shift that story. So it was going to be somebody who is a little more permanent over the course of the stories and put him in a place where, okay, we don't need to set up a love story for every movie because there's going to be this one girl. And from that point forward, we don't need to worry about setting up love stories for this character and um, or lust stories. I don't know if you'd call the James Bond sorts of relationships love stories, but you know, we're going to be setting something up. So she's out there and it'll give us these chances to either have a callback in a, like the, end of the next film or have her come back in bit parts, things like that over the course of it. But it's something that they're going to take out of the comparisons and just say, we're going to do something a little different by having him settle down. Right. And that's I, that really was the crux of this film. Ethan Hunt, apparently, after getting upset the last two times dealing with issues with IMF and and rogue people, has decided, you know what, screw all this, I'm just going to settle down and train people. And that's and we don't come in on the film this, in that particular place, but that's really where Ethan is by the time we get to the start of the story. Right. And it, uh, you know, so we, we start with this, uh, this thrilling in action bit, right, where we're where his Ethan and his at the time we see her as this woman that he obviously cares about, but we don't know his relationship to her. It being threatened by our main villain, Philip, Philip Seymour Hoffman, uh, playing Owen Davian, and he is being uh, he's counting to to 10. And so there is a ticking clock. And it, with every number, Ethan is going through yet another of the uh, stages of grief. And so by the time we get to 10, there is a gunshot and a cut and a scream. And now we're in the opening credits, which is an exhilarating way for me to start the the film. But then we immediately go back in time to the uh, what I call the Cloverfield house party, <laughs> because this <laughs> I don't know what it is, but it has this like this this stank of Cloverfield uh, on it. Uh, to me. <laughs> now, I, now I really want to have Ethan Hunt wandering through the party in right. Cloverfield. Like, just put it in the background. You just see him kind of wandering past. <laughs> oh, my God. That's that the, the so Rosencrantz funny. and Guildenstern are dead version of, of Cloverfield. Yeah. Is, they're, at, they're all at the right. same party. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You know what Rabbit's Foot is? It's Cloverfield. Yeah. <laughs> oh, geez. The, yeah, yeah, that's so, uh, the whole party sequence. Well, we're okay. We're setting up this story. I, I'm glad. I mean, it's my recollection of this story did not include this sequence, which is probably telling. My, my head, we came in and they were married. I don't know why I was thinking that, but what we're. Which is why in the last two episodes, as we were talking about, I'm like, when does he meet Julia? Like, I, I kept trying to remember, and I forgot that this film sets up the entire thing with their, not their meeting necessarily, but certainly their, uh, the fact that they have a relationship and that they're going to get married. And there's quite a bit of talk about, you know, you know what we do. You really, that might not be the smartest thing to do, as uh, Luther kind of tells him a number of times it it's one of these um setups for the story that i think it's uh, it's an interesting way to go but i just like seeing this house party it just really uh, it's there's something about it that i always struggle with because there's something about ethan in this environment that just seems false all the time like i just i just can't buy him <laughs> 
<laughs> in this sort of situation. Like, try it's it's like I go to something like the Hurt Locker and seeing what Jeremy Renner's character is doing, like when he's home, like he's just like I can't be here, like I I can't live in this world because nothing. There's so much more out there, and seeing like that PTSD sort of thing where I have to get back in the field with that particular character. It's so different than Ethan and how he behaves or and sure he's reading lips and all this sort of thing and and uh is you know kind of showing himself ever the spy, but there's something about it that I'm just like he's just too comfortable in it. Like there's nothing about him that has that PTSD I need to get back out in the field thing. I mean he certainly does, but at the same time he just seems maybe too comfortable as as just this employee. So let me just ask, though, let me just ask, because I have to I think I agree. I know what you're saying, but I wonder if if there is anything involved here that it's not even so much Ethan Hunt in this environment. But is it possible it's Tom Cruise? Oh, well, yeah, I mean, I, I yes. And Tom yes, Cruise. <laughs> that's a big part of it. I, I don't know. I, it, it, like if can he we can have Tom Cruise well. talking? I want a whole movie of Tom Cruise talking to Greg Grunberg about traffic. Yeah, right. Can we do that? Just a whole movie. That is like some of it is that's the challenge. I think that's the, the challenge. It is Ethan Hunt, the spy character. I can even in this fantasy universe of Mission Impossible, I can actually get behind Ethan Hunt wanting to settle down and wanting to impress the parents and the sister and all that stuff. I can kind of get behind that. I don't have a problem like that. My problem is that they they took a, at this point like an A-list actor and filled a room with B and C-list actors and and expect that to feel normal. And it, there's nothing about that that feels normal um i i think one of the one of the best scenes in that whole party is when ethan is on screen with nobody else just throwing ice into the alley like that <laughs> thank god that's a thing i can buy tom cruise doing throwing ice into the alley I, like all of that's fine but then we get back into it when he's got the mission should you choose to accept it sequence and he goes to the 7-eleven like i think that's he and he drives a volvo with a dog that's always in it like all that's i i think that is an effort Effort for the movie in just a few quick cuts to demonstrate this is a personal thing for Ethan. And in fact, to your point, he might might be playing the role of this super spy who's come out from the cold or come in from the cold and is now a trainer. But my goodness, it does not take long. Like the threads that hold him to his home are thin and easily uh, cut. Because he jumps. It feels like he jumps at the chance with one nightmare, one bad night's sleep. He's like, yeah, I got to go away on business. Yeah, the whole thing just, well, I guess that speaks to their attempt to kind of do that PTSD sort of thing. But yes, uh, I don't know. I just, I, he just seems too comfortable there. And yeah, the, the, he's, Tom Cruise seems too Tom Cruisey in that. It just, the whole thing plays like so false. I really struggle with, with that whole thing. And, uh, you know, the whole reason to jump back into the field and stuff, it's like, if you're the trainer, it's like, you're no longer the person. To, okay, students, you know, somebody that you trained inevitably is going to get captured. That's the sort of thing that happens in the world of spies. You know, the the fact that it's this one person and it's like, I, I can't, I it's my fault, I have to go help her. It's like... This is the world of spies. The whole thing, I just, I, I struggle with, and you know, we're we're pushing to have Billy Crudup's character 
um, be the one who's kind of driving to get him to go. He's the only one who can do it. She, you know, we would disavow her, except there's something that uh, she has that we need, like all of this sort of stuff. I'm just, it's, uh, you know, it's so scripted to get him out back into the field. And that's, I think, where this film, where I struggle with some of the elements of this film, because they are so forcefully pushing him into this life and we know that he just has to get back out into the field that I, I, I just never buy that world. That's why I, part of me really wishes all the stuff was Ju- with Julia was actually stuff that had happened long ago before he even started all of this. And like, to me, that's, that's the only way that it really would have made sense. And like, you know, his first mission, like j- doing a casino Royale, like his first mission, that's the one that got Julia nearly killed. And so, you know, they might still be married, but he never sees her. And like, I, I could have bought it a lot more like this far into his career to suddenly go through all this. I, I struggle with quite a bit. To that point, I, I wouldn't even mind if he was a trainer. Right. And they they were pulling him out for some reason or that he somehow sort of forced himself back in because of this level of guilt, whatever it is. But but going and seeing suburbia is the challenge that that I have principal challenge that I have with with the movie, because I, I feel the pressure. I feel the pressure that Abrams and team manifested that they knew what kind of movie this needed to be and had somehow felt that this was that the suburban suburbia part was important to get there. And yet, because they felt so allegiant to both ideas, they had to just jam the suburban part in there and and fast forward their their relationship to the point where I don't think it adds enough to the movie. I feel like they're trying to serve effectively too many masters here in the story and and cutting one would have made uh, for a better movie you know as a whole. That's that's kind of my take. Yeah, and uh, you know, it also goes to my whole issue with what ends up being the opening for the film, which is exciting. I mean, I do think it's kind of a, a thrill, like watching Tom Cruise, the actor, go through that wide range of emotions and everything that he does as he's trying to bargain with with Davian to uh, to set Julia free. Like, it's a really interesting scene, but also it ends up being kind of an ugly scene. Like, when when you think about what they're actually doing, it's, it's pretty awful what they go through. Um, to make us think that, you know, all of that actually happened. But also, it's just like, I end up finding that by the time the reveal happens that it was a mask and that uh, it was Davian's assistant, I'm like, why? Like, why would he use that as another opportunity to deceive Ethan at that particular point? Like, that just, it ends up making no sense to me because I think Davian is the sort who would have actually just killed Julia. Like, I'm just like, I don't, suddenly I don't get that anymore. And that's, I think, my, my biggest problem with that. Like, it it sets up this powerful thing that potentially sets Ethan onto this track, like, you know, Spider-Man or any of these other people. Like, I can't have anyone close to me because they'll only get hurt. And it it pulls the rug out from under it just to make sure that she's alive and to give the audience, you know, oh, thank goodness. Like, it just, I, I, I get so irritated at that part when that mask rips off later in the film. Yeah, I, I can absolutely see that. Uh, mostly because I think the, I think you're right that they built a character in Owen that is a guy that has no compunction over killing 
Yeah, uh, that's over the killing thing. the wife. That's the whole thing. And and I don't I mean, I I, I think it's it, it, I don't I don't think I have as big of a problem as you do, but it's definitely a detraction uh, in, in the film as much as I like the major set pieces. If he was actually going to leave Julia alive in that particular point, there has to be some better reason for it, because we don't get that. Like by the time the mask rips off and we go, oh, it was actually this other lady who disappointed Davian. Where's Julia? And now the race is on to get Julia. But it's not like Davian, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but Davian isn't really even doing anything with her at that particular point. She's just tied up being held by some other random thugs. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, so the why it's like it's that's yeah i just i end up getting so irritated with that because i'm like davian needs to be using her again if he's going to keep her alive and i just i feel like that's a plot failing that i always struggle with when when the reveal happens that she's alive it's like oh it's just so that ethan can save her and mm-hmm. uh, i mean but not to say i don't enjoy his his fight that he has with davian i think um that little bit is great when they're um uh, rolling around and they ru- end up in traffic. It's, I mean, it plays well, but you know, I, I just have those issues with it. The thing that I that I have, like, I have a headcanon for it that I have to like just wrap my head around in order not to think too hard about it, is that it was actually Musgrave who architected the effectively the the masking and you know he he was the one who wanted to protect julia because you know on on some level he didn't necessarily want to completely destroy these innocents lives i.e julia and and that it was his influence yeah well which probably is a part of it because i think that they actually talk about the fact that oh this we pulled this whole thing because we had to prove that the rabbit's foot was real um you know and that was i think the whole deal that they have but again it just ends up feeling convoluted and i just get i don't know why they couldn't prove that it was real anyway like i don't know it just i i it's a thing that i struggle with but and and perhaps that's the part of the issue is and this goes to jj abrams uh, as as the writer who loves his, what's his thing that he loves to do? The mystery um, box. Mystery box. Yeah. Like it's not quite the mystery box here. It's pretty much just a straight up MacGuffin, this rabbit's foot. You never really, it doesn't matter what this thing is. It's just, they have to steal it because that's this whole story. We have to get this rabbit's foot because that's the only way we can save Julia and, or we have to stop him from getting it and all this sort of stuff. Like it just doesn't even matter. And that perhaps is part of the issue because they set this thing up where you can't just get it. You then also have to have this whole thing about, you know, is it authentic and stuff? And that's the whole thing about keeping her alive. And I don't know. I just I end up finding more issues with that than uh, I should. And maybe it would have worked better if they had come up with an actual thing. Like when you when you have this thing called the the rabbit's foot, this whatever. I can't even remember what it was. What was the rabbit's foot? They now? don't, I don't think they, I, I don't think they ever reveal what the rabbit's foot is. Like, I think that's the, that's one of the challenges, right? It was like a biological weapon or something, wasn't it? Didn't they say it was something like a biological? Well, it, that's what, so uh, that's what, this is, this is, an, okay, you're going to, now you're going to poke my dragon because <laughs> that conversation, Benji, 
a lovable Simon Pegg has this conversation with everybody where he tells the story of his professor and the money and the, the, if anybody's going to pay this kind of money for this kind of thing, I think it's the the uh, what does he call it? The God anti God anti God yeah the anti God. I and then he says, oh, but that's just me speculating. Hand wavy, hand wavy, and then it's gone. Right. But he already said anti-God. And now in the movie, we as an audience have this idea of what the thing is, even though Benji himself in the same sentence says it's not. But we don't know, I don't think. Like, we don't actually, it's some kind of terrible, terrible thing that we never actually find out what it is. So to your point, if you're okay with a MacGuffin being so obviously a MacGuffin, right? Right, right. This is fine. It's totally fine. But if you have any interest in seeing the uh the the you know a resolution to more plot threads and more narrative threads in the, in the movie, it is not fine. It is it is waved off and it is played like I'm okay building allowing the audience to make their own um in, inferences based on what they see on the screen, but to have Benji's speech so deliberately, you know, define what it is and then tell us in the same sentence it is not, is a completely useless interaction in the movie. And I find it frustrating. Yeah. Which, you know, it's funny, and, and that, that might lead us into the next part of our conversation, because the team certainly starts to develop here. Funny Simon as Benji is actually not on the team. He actually just works in the office and he's he's like a tech who uh, they do integrate into a few plot elements of the story here and there. But largely, he's just the guy working at the office that they have to call the team. In this film, we have Maggie Q playing Jen Lay, Jonathan Reese Myers as Declan Gormley, and then uh, Luther is back. And that's the team that we have. Carrie Russell's not really part of the team. She's the one that they have to rescue. But that's that's when we meet the team, when we see these four going in to to rescue her. In the scope of teams, um, you know, we've kind of talked about our different teams thus far over these three films. I mean, how does this team stack up for you? I think that Maggie Q is uh, awesome and beautiful, and it proves that you can have a grounded marital relationship for Ethan Hunt and still have a sexy super spy in the movie as well. Uh, I also like Declan's uh, Jonathan Reese Myers. I think he's uh, fun and funny, and they're, they're fine. But the problem that I have with it is after this movie, I only remember Luther, Benji, and and Ethan and the other two, I just don't feel like, and of course, Carrie, because she has brain bomb. Uh, I just don't remember the other two uh, after this movie. They just don't stick. And I'm, I'm sure that's why they keep swapping the team around because we just don't have, we don't have a team that feels like a team. It still feels Tom Cruise and they're also present. It's uh, funny because this team actually ends up being a solid team from beginning to end. Like, we continue keeping uh, Maggie and Jonathan and Luther as the people that are helping Ethan all the way through the film. But I I can't help but think about, like, oh, yeah, they're in this movie. Like, they weirdly end up being as forgettable as the team in the second film because it's just that one guy from the outback who's helping uh, <laughs> you know Ethan and Luther because and he that has was just like pilot's license yeah that was the most nonsensical team but this one it's it ends up being weirdly like they they don't 
they don't click. Like I, I don't feel like there's actually cohesion with these four people as a team. Like it just feels like they're people who are kind of on screen together, but I just never felt like they actually were working together or had any chemistry together. And I think that's the biggest issue I have with this team. Um, and yeah, I, to your point, they're still trying to figure out the teams because this one, as they'll figure out, doesn't really work. Okay, so what are we going to do for the next film to come up with a team that might actually um, gel? And and uh, I think Luther obviously works. Uh, you know, they've kind of figured that out in the first film. And at this point, I think they're realizing, you know, Simon Pegg, he's actually really funny as Benji. Let's do something to bring him out. And that's, I think, what they're needing to do is like, okay, latch onto something that works and then we'll find some other things. And it just takes some time to get there. But, you know, they do get there. It's just, yeah, it's a shame that this one just feels so flat. Yeah, it really does. Even though these characters in the major set pieces, like I love the Vatican set piece, like right after Brain Bomb. And I should say Brain Bomb, uh, that the Brain Bomb actually detonates at, at right about 25 minutes into the film. But leading up to that, we have a number of uh, very cool, I think, uh, sequences like they have. They break into the building and Luther has the four mechanical guns and it's a really exhilarating sequence. There's a shootout on the way out. There's a six story deceleration on the cable to the truck. They drive out, they get in the helicopters, and there's this incredible helicopter chase through the windmill farm, which is all wonderful and beautifully practical, even though it kind of looks impractical because it's so weird to, like, film. They, like, I never get a good sense of scale, uh, even though you watch the behind the scenes and they shot that, like, practically filmed flying through the wind farms. Like, it's so cool that they would do that, even though they end up making it look a little funky. I don't like any of that. It, that whole sequence is is like eh, eh, it it just doesn't it's not exciting it's it ends up feeling oh i i have a ball of it pretty flat and the only exciting bit with that whole sequence for me which is gruesome but it's when the brain bomb actually goes off in Lindsay's head like just the that eyeball. the yeah. the shift of that eyeball it's like that said everything yeah horrifying yeah that's rough well i obviously i had a much better time of it but then we get to you know they go and, and they identify the body and it's oh, more eyeball it just keeps happening the eyeball we meet brassel and we get some administrative back end they actually have a conference room meeting uh which is uh, new material for us to see more and more like in terms of world building they're building the infrastructure behind imf like you get to see some of the voices who are arguably on those tapes and fantastic devices that that implode in five minutes five seconds like those those kinds of things are sort of fun if you can buy um brassel what would you think of fishburn uh you know he's fine i think in the scope of IMF agents and the the directors, I suppose he's more of a director than an agent. I think that he is okay. Like he doesn't stand out as doing anything unique in the film. He just seems like the guy who's there. And so I think it's fine. The way that it sets up, like, is it him or, you know, what is what's going on with Brassel? I I don't I don't know if I doubted it because so far IMF just seems like the most you know the most the easiest agency for people to um you know work their way in if they're um working with somebody else like everybody there's always somebody at IMF who's who is just um you know doing something illicit right and so you know was it a surprise that it wasn't Brassel but it was uh, Musgrave instead not really 
But I don't think either way would have really surprised me anyway, because IMF, like I just said, there's always somebody else corrupted IMF. So, um, yeah, I mean, Fishburne's fine. I don't think he does anything to stand out, though. Yeah, I I like I just like him on screen. He's a, a big authoritative voice, and he uh, I, I like when he yells at people. I guess uh, I especially like when he <laughs> yells at Billy Crudup, and I think they're you know Musgrave as assistant director. Uh, you know, and that that's their relationship. So director, assistant director uh, that they don't they don't truck well together is is, you know, it's sort of fine for me. I, I feel like they we when we talk about how miserable the team is, we kind of have to throw in IMF directors with that, too. Like there's no sense of cohesion at the top. And, and here I know it's dramatic right? It's, it's dramatic cohesion, but there's no charismatic cohesion either. Like, you can kind of feel when the movie starts that Lawrence Fishburne and Billy Crudup are not going to be in the next movie if there's a next movie, right? Just like Maggie Q and um, Jonathan aren't going to be in the movie again. Like, it just feels like they're still figuring that out. They did give him more than, I think, what, six lines <laughs> that Hopkins had, uh, but, but uh, we, we haven't found a home. Well, that's funny because when you look at the people who work at IMF over the course of the franchise, not the agents, but like the directors, I mean, Henry uh, Cherney coming back for Dead Reckoning Parts 1 and 2 is kind of interesting. But up to that point, he didn't stick around. Uh, Anthony Hopkins didn't stick around. Uh, Lawrence Fishburne's not going to stick around. Uh, the next film, I don't even remember who the director is in Ghost Protocol. I don't think Alec Baldwin starts till Rogue Nation, and then he's only in that and and Fallout. I, I believe that's correct. And then I can't remember Angela Bassett. I don't think she was IMF, but she also doesn't stick around. And so it's just one of those things where I think these people. Um, I don't know. It's it's weird to me that they haven't found somebody who's kind of the cohesive level at the top above Ethan. You know? Yeah. Um. That is absolutely true. Uh, I have to... Oh, uh, Tom Wilkinson in four. Oh, okay. Yes, right, right. Uh, so, yeah. So, there, yeah, the bald... And so uh, that Alec Baldwin gets two. Like, I think about Alec Baldwin. I think, gosh, it would have been great if Alec Baldwin had been in more of these movies. Like, if they'd found him earlier. Because I think for him, this feels... The, he feels to me like like the canonical IMF director. Yeah. Uh, anyway, right. that's for several weeks from now. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Uh, next big set piece. I think we go. Is it from there? We go to the Vatican. Uh, we come. We have the anti God conversation, and then yeah, they say, right. "Okay, we're going to go on business for two days, and it's going to be great. You're going to be fine. Don't worry. Let's get married first, and then they have a, the hospital chaplain marry them. Now they're married, and they go to Italy, and they have to get married before they show Maggie Q in that dress." Because that would have, you know, been rough for Ethan Hunt, right? Without a ring on his finger. Yeah. The the Vatican is our point where we get to play with masks. It's also where we get to actually see the team doing its things again, as we see each of them kind of going through the process of the different things. And, uh, you know, I think it plays kind of fun again with the masks. It's like, I'm not completely sure that just putting a mask on Tom Cruise is going to give him the Philip Seymour Hoffman body type. Like, there are elements that that I struggle with sometimes with the mask, where it's like, okay, but it's not like he put on a padded suit, 
you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman's a much bigger guy. I he totally is. And I wonder if they're even are they are, are they the same height? <laughs> like, are oh, they, goodness, I don't know. Uh, that that seems like but i feel like uh i i took it as an assumption that underneath his tux he was wearing some sort of a fat suit i but to change yeah, the body i mean i maybe yeah that's that was what he would have done we didn't see it but again we saw so much other behind the scenes stuff the fact that they have the maskatron 3000 they're actually making and painting the mask which i thought was a cool addition and last time you had a problem with the voice modulator bit this is where we get to see a little bit more of the voice modulation stuff like actually recording the voice sample i thought that was fun right where they have him read a particular phrase to kind of yeah it's interesting it certainly is interesting to see how they do it but um (laughs) you you still don't buy the accents Oh, no. I mean, this one I have less problem because we don't have to worry about yeah. the accents like Tom yeah. Cruise, Philip Seymour Hoffman, whatever. It's that's fine. <laughs> it's, a you know, it's pretty generic uh, tones. It was really the second film that just I couldn't couldn't get past that. Um, you know, I, I mean, it's fun. And actually, the mask work, we're talking about the different effects work that they do in the films. We talked about that in with the masks and how even from the first film, the way that they do it and they, they limit the visual effects uh, additions to the masks to kind of use it just more for transitions. Like, it plays really well here. Like, when you see Tom Cruise put it on and as he's adjusting it, you can slowly see it's getting a little closer to Philip Seymour Hoffman. It's getting a little closer until finally, suddenly, it's just Philip Seymour Hoffman talking with uh, Tom Cruise's voice. And like that plays really nicely. Like they they have those moments of the visual effects for the mask work here that I enjoy quite a bit. Yeah, I do too. I think it's really cool that particular effect. I I think diving into a little bit more of the tech behind the masks is only a good thing in this movie. How else do you level up the mask work after using it seven hundred times in Mission Impossible Two without showing us any of the behind the scenes stuff? Like this just felt like the the right way to do it. We do have the bridge car action because of course here they get they get Owen. They get him. Right. They catch they catch him in the Vatican and then this is the whole thing. Like as they're I actually really like the scene. We, we, before we get to the bridge, just they catch him and they're planning on using him. Of course, we find out the issue is that, of course, there is somebody inside the IMF who is a dirty. Oh my gosh, big surprise! Um, and and, and you're so um, hateful. You're no, it's so just it's hateful. just like it's like it's become like ridiculous. It's like every time there's an IMF person who's who's gone rogue, gone bad. But no, I really love the scene in the airplane when they are flying back with Owen and Ethan is talking to him and Owen just pushes him too far. Like the way that Owen approaches the conversation is not what Ethan's expecting at all. He's not scared. In fact, he's kind of more confrontational and talking to them about, you know, that's where he's doing it. You know, if you do you what's your name? If you have anyone that you love, I'm going to find them. I'm going to kill them. Like everything that he's saying is so interesting. I love that element of Davian. Like it's such an interesting villain and obviously pushes Ethan's buttons too far because Ethan opens the the belly of the plane and, and dangles Owen out, threatening to slice him out. And like that plays really interesting. And it plays right into Owen's hands because, of course, everybody else is shouting, Ethan, Ethan, don't, Ethan. And so that, uh, of course, tells him exactly who he's working uh, for or working with and knows that he has to know, knows that, oh, nice to meet you, Ethan. And now he knows his name like that. 
it plays so well. I, I, I really, that may be uh, my favorite scene in the film. Yeah, it, it's hard not to watch this movie and have a real soft spot for Philip Seymour Hoffman. Like, he he was just so, so good and so talented. And the fact that he is able to to demonstrate how flappable the unflappable Ethan Hunt is by just talking, by just calling out the, you know, just married vibes all over Ethan Hunt. <laughs> like It's just immediate, immediate button that did not exist before the, they got married like 10 minutes ago in movie time, right? So um, I, I think it was just really, really great, uh, easy button to push, but Philip Seymour Hoffman's um, just low-key dominance uh, in every single scene that he's in is fantastic. I just watch him walk around that party in the Vatican. Like just watch him stroll. Yeah. And, and they have fun with scenes like when Tom Cruise dressed as him shows up behind him in the bathroom. Like there are those fun moments that I, oh. uh, I enjoy quite a bit. They, 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 they play all of that stuff really well. And that's, that whole sequence is fun. But yeah, as you were saying, that does bring us to the bridge. And that's when the IMF, the obviously Musgrave, uh, tells them where they are and the whole drone and the team comes to free Davian. And uh, blow up the bridge and kind of in a sequence that weirdly seemed reminiscent to me of um, true lies with the whole ending on the bridge getting blown up. That it just really kind of it had that vibe. But I mean, yeah, it's an interesting sequence. I mean, you know, did it work for you? How, what do you think of this one in scope of the big sequences in in these films? Well, I do like it. I, I particularly this is another showcase of some incredible car work, some great stunt work and some great like, um, you know, those propulsive cannon shots watching these stunt drivers. The the one where the car just pirouettes uh, is uh, I think it's extraordinary. It's like really fun to watch this sequence over and over and see all the stuff they did with the car. And then we have the like what this movie is known for, I think, in terms of Tom Cruise taking a hit is the the shot where he is he is the he gets hit by the concussion of the missile behind him and is thrown laterally into the car and um i i think i've grown to love that stunt uh because i i i spent too much time watching tom cruise do it and watch him with the wires getting pulled into that car. When I first saw it, I thought, that is ridiculous. I feel like he would be thrown toward the camera, not sideways into the car. But that's, uh, you know, that's Tom Cruise getting slammed into a car on a stunt that they figured out how to do the day before. Like, that's just extraordinary how all those pieces came together. And I and it it plays really well on screen to me that's that's the thing that i think i get excited about is that even though when i shut off my like is would that would i believe that part of my brain i really i love the the act of the action on screen yeah i mean yeah i i think i struggle with it more than you i enjoy the act of the action on screen but never buy it yeah i mean it just looks i i think it's really cool and i i like the uh, uh i i like all of his propulsive running i like the um uh, I, I like when he jumps the chasm, right? He he gets the gun and then he jumps over that giant hole in the bridge and hangs on with his fingertips. Like again, I I cannot I I cannot believe 
this guy at this point is doing these things like he's leaving his this is jj abrams said like we measure the success of a scene by how many donuts tom cruise's stunt guy is able to eat in a day because he just didn't do that much work he did all of the the run-throughs like all the specs and then he would teach tom how to do that stuff on this movie and then tom would do it and uh it's it's just an extraordinary feat and coming off of i just have to I have to throw it out. We, even though this, you know, as we record this, I just saw Fast 10 and there is nothing believable in that movie that comes even remotely close to my experience watching this movie and this actor doing these things. Nothing. And, uh, and it makes it, it makes it hard to watch in this day and age. Yeah. Well, that, I guess, leads to the, uh, the, I guess, the center piece of the action i don't know this it'll be interesting to you know kind of gauge what we think is the actual actual like primary action sequence of the film because in this one we have to go retrieve the rabbit's foot from this um this uh skyscraper in shanghai and the or the process to do this is uh, we, we have ethan on one roof with uh and he's tied in you're going to shoot like a uh, you know, a connecting line to this other building, and he's going to jump off of this building, like run the opposite direction, jump off the building so he can swing and get a great uh, bit of momentum and land on this slope, the top of this sloped building, take out the guards, and then get inside to get the rabbit's foot. And in the meantime, this is where you have the baseballs because there's a, on a different building, there is a, um, a uh, baseball yeah, like a pitching machine like yeah pitching machine just driving balls across the uh the uh, gap between buildings so that they all hit this sloped roof and just i guess the intent is to just confuse the guards so that they don't notice tom cruise swinging over uh it was kind of a strange strategy um but that's what they do and then of course ethan has to stop from sliding off the edge of the roof and then break in and interestingly in the scope of MacGuffins, this whole thing is also a MacGuffin because we don't actually get to see the break-in. We stay with everybody outside as they're trying to um, figure out where to go get Ethan. And then, of course, the whole gag is it's not going to work and he has to jump out of the window and then fly down uh, with his uh, parachute and, and they have to chase him. So what do you think of this sequence? How does how does the way that it's structured work for you? <laughs> okay. I just listened to a Tom Cruise interview this morning. And he was talking about this particular stunt. And he said, I really wanted to make this work for Mission Impossible 2. And we couldn't get it. We couldn't we couldn't crack it. We couldn't get it working. Which particular part? The entire scene? The pendulum. The pendulum stunt. Oh, the pendulum. Okay, okay. Yeah. Yeah. They wanted to do some sort of break-in on the pendulum stunt. And so it, that sort of recontextualizes my experience with the pendulum stunt. Baseballs? Tossing baseball, like talk about the unbelievable elements of action in this sequence, throwing baseballs from building to building on a 900 foot skyscraper in the middle of Shanghai, like is ridiculous. That is a ridiculous and unbelievable thing, even for the impossible mission force. The fact that they would just say, okay, maybe some of these baseballs were okay with them falling to the street below, like. That is yeah, right. It, Somebody's going to get beamed and yeah. like that's going to hit somebody and like drive right through their head. 
and there is so much stuff in this movie that I'm able to just like write off. But the pen- baseball's leading to the pendulum swing, swing leading to him being able to stop himself uh, in time, and and you know falling through and cracking that glass. Like there's so many examples in this movie of people taking very little force to bash through safety glass and here he lands full weight on the top of that building and doesn't fall through the glass below that seems like crazy to me and i think it might have made for a more interesting and surprising sequence if he didn't just slide down the angled glass like there's no world in which i didn't expect him to slide down the angled glass and have to miraculously catch himself at the last minute and so all of that stuff just feels kind of ridiculous to me so when you ask what the principal action sequence is or stunt sequence is it's not this i don't even think of this uh when it comes to to this movie i didn't even remember it was in here does it work for you i mean am i like it it, are you is this the one scene you like in this movie (laughs) i don't (laughs) <laughs> I like the pendulum idea. I really do like that idea. And and to his credit, I'm glad that he did actually figure it out to get it into one of these films. I just I, I think the reason it ends up feeling forgettable is because of the way that they choose to do it where we don't follow Ethan. He goes inside and, and he gets it and then we just see him jump out and then the chase is on through the streets as they have to pick him up and drive off with him. And it just it like it ends up weirdly becoming kind of forgettable because it's like they didn't even we're not even going to worry about the mission we're just going to show you the getting in and out and it's like well okay then it's a little flat then this is it's it's the weirdest film for me because there's nothing in it that i actually remember of any of these action sequences like i i couldn't have told you about that opening one like i just i it doesn't ring it doesn't excite me at all the Vatican is probably the one that is maybe most interesting to me. The bridge sequence, it has its moments. I think the thing that I think of the most is probably just running over the like the roofs and through the streets of Shanghai trying to save Julia. Like the running there in the streets is probably the thing I remember, which is like not even one of the exciting action beats in this film. So it's weird that of the stuff in this film, it ends up feeling the least impressive to me. And I wonder if that comes from, again, this is Abram's first opportunity to jump into directing on the big screen. And I wonder if his small screen sensibilities um, might come through too much for me where I just like nothing seems exciting here. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I don't I, I certainly don't have that level of, of challenge with it. Like, I feel like I, I have a greater affinity with the movie than you do. But they that that sequence, I feel like to, they put an awful lot of work for it. And again, watching the behind the scenes, they didn't shoot it in Shanghai, but they did shoot it off of like a 90 foot building in, in uh, you know, elsewhere. And they have Tom doing the run and jumping off and doing the grunting and doing everything he needs to do and to, to pull off the pendulum bit. And it's extraordinary to to watch the behind the scenes but this is a sequence where i think the behind the scenes is more interesting than the resultant you know film it's like the knife in and the eye in the last one it's like they 100%. shot it in such a way where it's like that was insane and awesome that you did it that way but unfortunately you shoot it in a way where i just think you're doing cg and i never bought it and in this film it's like okay you crafted a an interesting entrance to a scene and then you kind of kill it and and i just i end up forgetting about the whole thing yeah did you, I mean, did what do you think about Tom's ability to do window math, though? Did you note that at all? Angle of approach, pendulum, he does it all traced with crayon on the glass. <laughs> I thought that was, you know, that, I mean, that, turn off your brain, it's fun. 
Yeah, um, it's, it's but that, I I don't think his numbers would have been right. <laughs> I think he would smash into the building. Yeah, it's uh, some of that stuff is a little, yeah, little funky. You, you, when you're working on a plane, a flat plane, it's like, well, you're not actually on a flat plane when you're doing this. Yeah. So, but whatever. I I would say on our way down from that, you know, he he jumps, he, he's got the parachute, he smashes into the glass into a, the building, and he lands on his back on a conference table or desk or something, and we have the cleaning guy standing in there, and they have a look of. They share a look of surprise and the gag happens where the wind picks up and it pulls him back out of the thing. I feel like that's 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 a cheap gag. I'm done with those gags. I don't feel like it was pulled off particularly well. It it, it weirdly it feels kind of more in line with later Mission Impossible films like that sort yeah, of like right. jokey element feels like it ties into everything going on with Benji and all that sort of stuff where you have those little kind of those small gag moments. So that that honestly doesn't bug me too much. You're right. You're right. You know, maybe the reason it bugs me here is because it feels out of place in this movie. Right. Like maybe that's the problem. Maybe. Yeah, yeah maybe. But it also feels Abramsy, doesn't it? Like I feel like we get a lot of that. It sure in, does. Yeah. When you look at the Star Trek films or the the Star Wars films, like it just feels like something that he really enjoys. Those sorts of little uh, gags that you throw in there. It just it feels weirdly like something that you get. And I don't know if this is completely fair, but like when I think of him or I think of. Joss Whedon, like those sorts of TV writers who move into films, it feels like a, a technique that they love playing with. Yeah. Um, I the One last thing, Tom lands on the street and he has to run through the traffic to get the, pick up the canister. And he says, I find I wow, just, does I that thing roll? It rolls far. And he says, <laughs> you know, the stunts where, the stunts where I'm like running in and out of moving cars, like running through traffic, and those aren't my favorite. And I think it's really funny that the one set of stunts where Tom's actually on the ground uh, is are, are the ones that he doesn't like very much. He does a lot of the bobbing and weaving, whether he's on foot or in a car. He does all the driving in this sequence up front where he's weaving in and out of all the traffic um, while on the phone. He does all that driving himself. Uh, a lot of these sequences that are cut like the elevator fight where he frees himself from the gurney and, and uh, does the driving and does the run through the traffic here. The way he talks about them, they shoot them all it, it, like they plan for the stunt in one to be done in one take and there are lots of cuts in them it's not like they're trying to fake it but they do it all in one take so you know that's that's part of i think his his kind of or maybe it's a stunt thing but or maybe it's just his method but he wants to make sure he can do a seamless run of the entire major stunt sequence and i think by and large you can tell like it feels super cohesive to me like i think these major uh, stunt runs look good uh, when he does them, he also said he hates glass work because um, he's had glass in his eye. He said that's one of his least favorite things. Like he said, he talks about how yeah. like these crazy stunts like are no problem at all. But it's those little things like getting the piece of that glass in your eye that just is the one of the hardest things to deal with when you're doing stunts. Yeah. Oh, I don't care for that. No, oh, interesting. So. This, the history of this was interesting because David Fincher was actually set to direct this film. This was right after the uh, part two, which was a 2000 film. Uh, J David Fincher was set to direct this in 2002, 
and for a 2004 release and uh but had uh, differences of direction and his quote i thought was interesting i think it's telling especially when you're looking at the the star also being the producer fincher said quote i think the problem with the third movies is the people who are financing them are experts on how they should be made and what they should be at that point when you own a franchise like that you want to get rid of any extraneous opinions and you know fincher is certainly a director who has very particular ways to do it. And I think he was a person who did a, a third film. He did Alien 3. And and looking at the the people behind that film who probably were dictating to him what that franchise needed to be, I think that was one of the issues. And so it's interesting that that he ended up dropping out. Then Joe Carnahan was on to direct. And he worked on it for a long time. And uh, I, I, you found a little bit about what the story was going to be, right? Yeah, I think it's actually really interesting. I, I the um I, you know, for with regard to the Fincher one, he wanted to make a really violent one and and he it was supposed to be you know, really amp up the violent scale. And he's, he, he said, if they, if, if they let us do half of the things I want to do in this movie, it's going to be an interesting little film. Uh, Carnahan came out, and he had this whole thing about making it a, a movie about the privatization of the military and Africa uh, with the villain inspired by Timothy McVeigh. Um, and wanted to make this in the vein of our favorites, uh, the paranoia uh, dramas, Marathon Man. Uh, and he, But he had said, I think this film would have been a $50 million film, not a $186 million film, which is what it was ultimately budgeted for. He had already cast Kenneth Branagh, Carrie Ann Moss, and Scarlett Johansson, uh, and uh, they were already signed in, ready to go, and it did not uh, take off. They, they, he just didn't want to make the movie with the money they were throwing at him. And so JJ. And then and then uh, yeah, JJ Abrams, which is funny cuz yeah, Cruz had just binged the first two seasons of Alias and so wanted thought Abrams would be a good one to come on and Abrams came on. And then of course in all of this process, you know, Ricky Gervais was actually cast as Benji. I can't imagine he would have been somebody who continued through the franchise. I think he would have been another one and done had he ended up as Benji. But yeah, he ended up leaving because he had conflicts uh, with his schedule. And finally, the whole thing uh, started moving forward. But yeah, it was quite a road to get get this one going. And again, we end up with Abrams and his team um, working to make this thing um, what well, it is. And and yeah, and that was the that was another thing. Like, I think that, you know, when you hear about Branagh and Moss and Scarlett Johansson, they were on after the transition to Abrams. But Abrams said, look, I... I told them they could go because we rewrote the script and they were suddenly waiting for characters that had not been written yet. And that was unfair to everybody. So there was no um, there was no issue with uh, and and there was no hope of them ending up in the movie even after um, Abrams came on. So, um, yeah, it's it's fine. Another interesting thing that changed, and this was actually in production, Eddie Marsan, who's the, I don't know what he is in relation to um, Davian, like he's his assistant, he does something torture, <laughs> I don't know what he is, but he's somehow working with Davian. He was actually going to be the one who had the scene and the, where he shoots Julia. That was all going to be Eddie Marsan's character. And only later did J.J. Uh, Abrams realized that they needed it to be Davian to do that and had to redo that um, scene with, with Davian, which is 
um, it, Marsan totally understood story wise. It made more sense, but I can't, I can't, I can't imagine that would have been a cool scene to have in his reel. Yeah. I just, it just is such a strange thing. Like, let's have this bit part character, um, you know, in this scene, like it would have just played weird. Yeah. What do you think of, there's been a lot of talk with like just everything shifting in kind of cultural perspectives and everything, but certainly in this film, in the scope of how the female characters are treated, um, I, I, I can't help but feel like there's some issue with the, the way that um, it just, it seems like, they aren't treated as well as they could be. Like Julia obviously is killed right at the beginning only to have faked out. She's actually not killed, but certainly is like kidnapped and held. Uh, you've got uh, Maggie Hughes character gets shot. Uh, Carrie Russell gets killed. I, I just feel like in the scope of these sorts of stories, is this something that they're doing to use these female characters in a way to, I don't know. Does does it strike you that they're using them in a way that's less than savor, or just putting putting the women at risk for some particular reason? I don't. I I've never looked at it that way. I honestly haven't. Not in this movie. And I feel like part of it is because Carrie Russell, it, like she dies a super awesome dramatic death for like an an actor would like to have a death scene like that, right? Like it does. It feels like she is a badass and. She acquits herself well in the escape, and we have that awesome sequence of, like, this is adrenaline, you're going to feel this. Like, that, and, and she's aces, like, coming out. That, what a great guest spot, like, sort of cameo action spot in this movie. Uh, and Maggie Q, I, you know, I guess... Um, I, I don't know. Are you? I, I guess I have a hard time manifesting malevolent sexism in this movie in particular. You know what I mean? I don't get it. Yeah, and I'm not even saying it's malevolent. I just, I just feel like it's just one of those. Is it one of those things that's of the time where we're going to put more women in harm's way than the men? You know, I. I don't know. And and it could very well be. And I think the the most uh, you know you you I don't know you can't really have the conversation without talking about Michelle Monaghan and and her role as the wife in distress. And she does have a bit of a redemption role at the end because she gets to hero up and save Tom and 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 do all that. But uh, but she's a nurse, right? <laughs> like of course there's if there's going to be someone put into distress it's going to be why i don't know how else you you do you do that and and like this story is not made if if there is a problem putting the like putting the wife in danger the new wife in danger the innocent who knows nothing about the life and i i'm i'm not saying it's um not saying it's great but for the story it it works for me yeah but then you know to then to have all the other people be women too it just it it, it just ends up feeling like interest like and I, I again i don't need, i don't think there's nothing that i've ever heard where that puts jj abrams like in the same camp as somebody like joss whedon or something yes, you know that was my next question yeah no no yeah because i'm certainly not going that direction but it just does make me like it, i don't know i just think that it, it strikes me as odd that it's like interesting Every woman in this film is in some way hurt or it's like the men aren't, you know, it just, it just it strikes me as a little odd to kind of go that route. And I just don't know if it was even just a subconscious thing or or, you know, and who knows? It's just one of these things that 
I think ends up coming up in conversation more in these sorts of stories because yeah, if you're going to have the wife, sure, the wife is going to be put kidnapped, but then yeah, we're going to also every other woman who's involved also has to get hurt in some capacity. Well, I think there is definitely a uh, a sort of father son vibe that or father daughter vibe that they're trying to cultivate between Carrie Russell and Tom Cruise here, Ethan and and Lindsay. It wasn't a former lover. No, I never had a former lover. I okay, interesting. I I thought perhaps they had had a relationship. I never got that. I got that it was just like it, that she was his first trainee to be field ready, and that he felt that mentor mentee kind of responsibility to her. Yeah, I never had anything like romantic or overtly sexualized between their relationship. Uh, and and that's one of the reasons I liked it. Like that that that's part of the reason that he comes out of you know, retirement is because she's important to him and he feels responsible for her, you know, what is being classified as a failure because it's kind of his failure. Yeah. So in that light, the only other thing that they could have done is shoot Jonathan Rice Myers instead of <laughs> Maggie Q. God, I would have been satisfied with that. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Maybe that's my issue. Maybe that's the whole it's issue. Like, if you're going to shoot someone, why not just shoot him? Maggie Q had some great moments, too, and she drove that wonderful car. Oh, she sure did. Yeah. All right. Uh, anything else about this one? No, I don't think so. Uh, it's, it's, not a, uh, it's not a five-star film for me, but it's, uh, but it's certainly not a Mission Impossible 2. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll be right back, but first, our credits. The next reel is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson, music by Yeko Pietra, storial novella at Eli Catlin. Andy usually finds all the stats for the awards and numbers at d-numbers.com, boxofficemojo.com, imdb.com, and wikipedia.org. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. All right, Andy, how to do it the in awards season? You know, it was it it fits in the line of these sorts of films like their last two. It had seven wins with 14 other nominations. The Visual Effects Society Awards, it was nominated for outstanding created environment in a live action motion picture for all the stuff on the tops of the skyscrapers, but it lost to Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest. Uh, over at the Motion Picture Sound Editor's Golden Reel Awards, it was nominated for Best Sound Editing and Sound Effects and Foley for a feature film, but lost two letters from Iwo Jima. At, our, at the Saturn Awards, one of our favorites, it was nominated for Best Action Adventure Thriller Film, but lost to Casino Royale. This is a funny one. Best Actor Tom Cruise was nominated, but lost to Brandon Routh, of all people, for <laughs> Superman Returns. Everyone loves that one. Wow. Um, best director, uh, Abrams was nominated, but lost to Brian Singer for Superman Returns. He was nominated for best special effects, but lost to Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest. And supporting actor, Philip Seymour Hoffman was nominated, but lost to Ben Affleck in Hollywoodland. Uh, and then over at the Toros World Stunt Awards, this film was nominated for high work. And this is when a stuntman is shot and falls backwards out of a window to the ground below. Uh, lost to Casino Royale in the opening sequence. James Bond chases a bad guy through a construction site. They jump between beams and cranes and climb up a building's beams. I would definitely pick Casino Royale in that case. I would too. 
I was trying to remember, where is the scene where a stuntman is shot and falls backward out of a window to the ground below? Is that in the opening? It's in the it's in the rescue of Lindsay sequence. Yeah. And that guy, I can't remember his name right now, that guy is like a uh, world cage fighting uh, 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 cage fighting champion. And he's a guy who does the uh, the same guy who does the face plant and they call it his patented face plant where he he'll throw himself. <laughs> he'll throw himself off of a mat and land on concrete on his face with no like he wears some body padding under his clothes but generally he just lands on his face on the concrete he's figured out how to do it without terribly hurting himself and for those sequences where you need somebody to not fall out of frame when they've been shot he's your man he's the guy who will always land on pavement ouch right same guy and he didn't even get to win the award i know shoulda should have. Oh, that's what happens when Casino Royale comes out the same year. Oof. Yeah, that was a good one. <sighs> yeah, tough one. All right. Well, how to do in the box office. Well, Abrams' entry into the franchise got even more money, $186 million, or $279 million in today's dollars. The movie opened a bit earlier this time, May 5th, 2006, opposite An American Haunting, Hoot, and the limited releases of The Promise, Art School Confidential, and The Proposition. This opened in the number one spot, which it held for two weeks. It stayed in the top ten for six weeks and ended up the eighth highest grossing film of the year, earning $134 million domestically and $265.9 million internationally, for a total gross of $599.9 million in today's dollars. That lands the film with an adjusted profit per finished minute of 2.5 mil, a big drop from the last two, but still a success. Yeah, it is a drop, but where do you what do you think like about why the film didn't perform as well? Was it like we opened with the conversation on that a little bit that and I'm curious your take on the the sort of impact of the Tom Cruisery at this time. I I mean, I think that's definitely part of it. Um I think that there there was this era in 2005-6 where Cruz was making a lot of uh, projects that people were getting, um, you know, that seemed like exciting projects, but there was some frustration with the, the behavior that he was having um, in the real world. Like, uh, this was the same era that, you know, in 2005 he did... War of the Worlds um, with Steven Spielberg, and um, then then this the very next year, and I just feel like jumping on couches and things like that. People were just rolling their eyes constantly with him and his behavior, and like, can you just settle down a little bit? And I think that was a real problem um, for people. I don't know if that's completely. The issue, though, with this one, like, I can't help but think that some of it also just boils down to the fact that, you know, I I know not for you as a big J.J. Abrams fan, but for me, and I think probably a lot of people, like, when I think of this film, I just, I can't think of that singular action sequence that stands out. It just, it feels kind of like a, like, I enjoy the story and I enjoy some of these elements within it, but it just doesn't stand out to me as something that's full of impossible missions. It just doesn't seem as exciting to me and ends up kind of feeling a little more forgettable. 
Well, and I think that is a, I think that's a really good point, which is that this movie is not a movie necessarily about the, the spy craft that we have, that we assume is coming to the table when we go to see a Mission Impossible movie. This was a very personal movie about a guy who defies, uh, uh, you know, his organization to do a personal thing and gets a lot of people wrapped up in it. It's just not a, a Mission Impossible movie in, in the way we've, understood them and to me that works and but i absolutely understand that i'm a bit of an island in hindsight he went on right i mean the like i i don't know i didn't i didn't mind war of the worlds but you talk about a movie that's largely forgettable for me like i remember the scenes i remember are like him walking around at the dock in the beginning and then it's all kind of a there's there's one where there's something hunting him through a dark house. Like, I remember that a little bit. But Collateral was great leading up to Mission Impossible 3. After that, he had kind of a run. Lions for Lambs, Tropic Thunder, funny, but not for the whole family. Valkyrie, Night and Day. I think you're a Night and Day, a real Night and Day head, aren't you? Oh, I mean, it's a fun movie. I certainly um, would put it on before this. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough, fair enough. All right. Well, it's it's funny because and I, again, I just like is it the J.J. Abramsness of it? I just don't know. As his first film, like Tropic Thunder, absolutely is fantastic. I, I think of Tom Cruise like it really just kind of as a, a kind of more of having fun in that and just being kind of a supporting player. Um, but you look at before this, like you said, Collateral, fantastic film by a director who really knows how to tell films. War of the Worlds, I think it has far more memorable sequences than anything in this because Steven Spielberg is at the helm. Like that sequence, that one inside their minivan as they're driving down the freeway and the, the camera's just doing 360s around their vehicle. Like it's just the way that the craft craftsmanship of that film, I mean, despite some of the issues with the story. I think it's far superior in the way that it's constructed. Valkyrie, I think Brian Singer has a better handle on production. And Night and Day, I just think that it, it's not the greatest of films. But again, I think James Mangold is a director who knows how to put interesting films together. And I like later J.J. Abrams films. I think he kind of figures things out. I just I think with this particular film, again, maybe it's just fitting it into the Mission Impossible mold. I just don't think that this fits the mold. And so I guess to that end, I enjoy the film. I just I I don't think of it as a very exciting entry. Well, I I think it's safe to say. I mean, it is it's 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 peak. Like, it feels like peak J.J. Like, the opening of this movie, I know that I'm in a J.J. Abrams movie. And if you don't truck with J.J. Abrams, like, I could see how that's a that becomes a challenge. Uh, and J.J. Abrams has softened his hand a little bit. For me, this is Alias. And I loved Alias. And so that's, like, I get how I'm in the bag for this movie, for sure. But also, and you said it earlier, this movie is a glass of cold water after the just desert that was Mission Impossible 2. And there is some bit of exhilaration for me going back to this movie and feeling like I felt after watching that, you know, the tragedy that was the second movie, the John Woo movie. And, you know, just (laughs) saying... John Woo has directed far greater films before and after that one. It is a... I, I feel like that is a real... I don't know. I find it to be a real low point for him. It, and JJ Abrams. A low point. Yeah, JJ yeah. Abrams will direct better films than this. Like I think that he'll do some really fun stuff. We talked about him with in when we did our Star Trek films and 
certainly on the film board with some of the Star Wars films. And, and you know, I have a lot of issues with a lot of things that Abrams does in his stories. And sometimes his mystery box thing just, it just makes me really roll my eyes at how hard he works to create it. Um, but I think that there, there is value in what he's doing. And, you know, there still is an emotional resonance with this film. I enjoy the relationship between Ethan and Julia. Like, I think that I buy that. I, I'm glad that Benji is now in the fold. Like, there are a lot of things that do work in this film. I don't want to make it, you know, sound like I completely hate this film. I just, I, I, I just find that I end up having more issues with it than I would want to. That scene where he bites the sticks when she electrocutes him and they kind of explode in his mouth. Oh, awesome. wow. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Anyway. All right. Uh, we should, we, we should probably move on. Well, we, we will be right back for our ratings, but first here's the trailer for next week's movie, Brad Bird's 2011 film, Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. An hour ago, a bomb blew up the Kremlin. The president has initiated ghost protocol. The entire IMF has been disavowed. Now I've been ordered to take you to Washington, where they will hang the Kremlin bombing on you and your team. Unless you were to escape after assaulting Brandt and me. But if any one of your team is caught... They will be branded terrorists out to incite global nuclear war. So what happens now? Your mission, should you choose to accept it. So, what's the play? Letterboxd, Andy, you've heard of Letterboxd. It's our favorite social media network for movie lovers, and it's got ads to support uh, the service, but you can get rid of ads if you want, and you can do it with a code that supports both the next reel and Letterboxd. Just go uh, upgrade get rid of ads, support the Kiwi team that makes the site work, and uh, you'll get 20% off. The code is NEXTREAL. And if you happen to be on Letterboxd site and scroll down to the upgrade to pro or patron, that's where you enter the code. But if you go to thenextreel.com slash letterboxd, that's letterboxd, B-O-X-D, 
then uh, you'll go to your checkout page with the code already applied. Saves you 20% and it works on renewals as well. All right, Andy, what are you going to do? Uh, you know, uh, this it, it's a fun film. I, I have a hard time going above where I sat with the first film, which was three and a half. I, I think this film, uh, I enjoy it. I also have issues with this one, just like I did with the first film. But And I know everything after this, I enjoy so much more. So three and a half and a heart. I think that's a good place to be. I uh, I think I'm going to stick where I've had this thing rated for all these years, which is four stars minus the star for all the things we've talked about. Uh, but generally, most of the set pieces, the vast majority of the set pieces work. I like the relationship. I like the the car. <laughs> I like the running up the wall in the Vatican. I can celebrate all of those things. And I, I feel like it's uh, it's it's earned its four stars for me. That's right. So this will land at three and three quarters stars when we average it out. So that means over on Letterboxd, it'll be listed with four stars and a heart. Don't forget, visit thenextreel.com slash Letterboxd to get your pro or patron membership. It works for renewals as well. So what did you think about Mission Impossible 3? We would love to hear your thoughts. Hop into the Show Talk channel over in our Discord community where we will be talking about it this week. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Letterboxd giveth, Andrew. As Letterboxd always doeth. I So I'm going to ask you kindly if I could go first, because yours is going to have more substance. <laughs> sure. Do you mind? This is from uh, Fran Hopfner uh, with the three and a half stars. And I, this is so astute, I can't believe we didn't actually talk about it. I've gone back to IMDb to verify, and it's, I think this is accurate. Fran says... What people of a certain age, Zoomers, TikTok era, etc., maybe don't know is that there was a period of time in recent history where you could watch something, a film, a TV show, and Jonathan Rice Myers was in it. Maybe he would take his shirt off. You'd never know. He would just be there as a hot guy or something akin to a hot guy. Just the way of the world for a while. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's really funny because I went back to his this era. He made a lot of movies in this era, a lot of movies. And I imagine just playing the odds, his shirt is off in a lot of them. Some non-zero number, his shirt is off. Well, he just keeps busy all the time. He sure does. I'm trying to remember the last movie of his that I actually saw. There's <laughs> a lot of movies I haven't seen in the last 10 years of his. This was the last film that I've seen of his. I haven't seen anything he's done since 2006. Wow. Well, I just think it speaks to the sorts of projects he's likely picking, you know. Well, and there you go. He's in Vikings. He's 17 episodes of Vikings. I haven't seen Vikings. But I'll bet his shirt's off in that for sure. <laughs> well, I went with uh, Demi Adejuwebe's, uh comment for this, which I, I thought was, uh, you know, I don't know. It says a lot of kind of some of what I feel about this. Easily the most forgettable Mission Impossible movie, in part because J.J. directs this like he was given the keys to the franchise five hours before production began, but in part because the script doesn't care about you understanding anything. 
kind of a mess, saved entirely by uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. The flashback opening is extremely memorable for good reason, and I love the scene where Hoffman has to play Ethan Hunt in a PSH mask. Would have loved if they went all in on Ethan Hunt's fake backstory of working for the Department of Transportation. Quote, babe, I gotta go uh, away for a week. They're uh, inventing a new uh, bus. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you're the best. Thanks, Letterboxd. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.